everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. Sorry it's been a couple of weeks since we managed to do this podcast. I've been on the road quite a bit, but I have a bunch more interviews lined up on a whole host of topics that we want to start taking a closer look at, and we'll also have some exciting news coming up in the new year about a new direction this podcast will be taking. But in the meantime, one of the people I've wanted to talk to for quite a long time, simply because his work is is really quite magnificent, is the historian Eric Foner. He's 75 years old. Many of you have probably uh, heard of his work if you're interested in American history. I think the first one of his books that I picked up was his uh, 2011 book, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery. And he actually won the Pulitzer Prize for history uh, for that book, as well as the Lincoln Prize and the Bancroft Prize. The most recent book that I have of his is on the Underground Railroad. It's a very groundbreaking work that takes, uh, it makes use of a lot of new sources that other historians had previously not looked at, and he just pa- he paints a, a very vivid and very fascinating picture of what is genuinely one of the most interesting and most inspiring stories of American history. And I've always thought the Underground Railroad, in these these times, these last couple of years where the race wars seem to be reigniting over, you know, Confederate statues and Black Lives Matter and and work your way down the list. Americans seem more divided along the lines of race than they have been for a long time, certainly since since the civil rights movement came to a close. Uh, A lot of things that that we all just assumed got put to bed with the election of President Barack Obama, who was somebody as all of you uh, who listen to the show will know is somebody that I, I, I very much opposed because he was the most radically pro-abortion president in American history. But nonetheless, there was a historical significance to having uh, the first African-American president. But his presidency did not seem to unite Americans. It seemed rather to divide them. And you have a, a really bizarre turn of events where many people who voted twice for Obama then voted uh, for President Donald Trump. And so this is a very strange uh, situation. And in looking for histories uh, that really unite uh, America, the Underground Railroad, I think, should be considered one of them, considering the fact that it was people of all races and all different groups of all different backgrounds working together for something we can all agree is objectively good, a, a genuinely uh, righteous cause. So I've really been looking forward to talking uh, talking to uh, Dr. Eric Foner. I, I've been wanting to speak with him for quite some time. We've been going back and forth for a couple of months trying to set up a time. Uh, he writes very extensively on American political history, uh, the history of freedom and the Republican Party, uh, African-American biography, Reconstruction. He's a member of fa- uh, the faculty at Columbia University Department of History and has been since 1982 and has written a bunch of different textbooks on the aforementioned topics. He is also the president of the American Historical Association. He was elected as such in 2000 and in 2018, so this year he was elected to the American Philosophical Society. So I wanted to just have a discussion with him about the relevance of the past to the present, and this is that conversation. The first question is, is what made you write your most recent book on the abuse and misuse of American history? Because it's, it's extremely current, but some of the things that you address, uh, some of the things you address might surprise some people. Yeah, well, I mean, that book is a collection of essays that I had published in The Nation magazine um, over the course of many years, actually. I've written a lot for them. 
And, um, you know, to some extent it was simply the fact that they have a little publishing uh, program which brings together uh, essays in the nation or articles by uh, fairly prominent people, E.L. Doctorow, for example, and others. Mm -hmm. And they asked me if I'd like to do that. I said, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, these things are out there if one has access to the nation website, but still putting them all together uh, in one volume, I thought would be useful for people interested in these issues. But also, as you say, I was motivated by the fact that these debates over history seem to never end, and in fact have gotten maybe even more intense in the last few years with the battles over Confederate monuments and statues and uh, things like that. So, um, you know, it seemed to me that even though some of these essays are five years old, 10 years old, 20 years old, they still actually speak to the present. So um, uh, I thought they might be a contribution to the ongoing discussion that's going on right now. Can you explain why Confederate statues suddenly became a big deal? When, when, when this whole controversy sort of erupted, I remember thinking, you know, it seems strange uh, that so many people are reacting in such a, in such a hostile manner to it, but yeah, it also seems I mean, strange. Well, why now? Exactly explain why, because these statues have been up for a long time. Yeah. And, um, you know, most, <laughs> most statues actually are pretty much ignored, right? Yeah. People walk by statues all the time and they barely look at them. Um, I, when we talked about this in classes, I would say to students, you know, you've, all of you have been in Central Park at one time or another here in New York City. There are many statues of historical figures in Central Park. Can anyone here name one statue <laughs> in Central Park? Nobody could. So they're there, but you just barely notice them. Nonetheless, um, you know, I think the the debate over Confederate statues came because, you know, the most recent controversy, which a little before that it was the Confederate battle flag, you know. Right. Uh, and there were debates over that. And to some extent that's because uh, that um, that symbol that that image was has been taken up by right wingers by white nationalists and displayed very prominently at their rallies and things and so people reacted against that and felt well all right individuals have a right to show anything they want but you know i just realized the the confederate flag is flying over the state house in south carolina in other places it's part of the public you know, public presentation of history, and maybe it shouldn't be that way. But the statues, they aroused the same kind of uh, uh, both positive and negative feelings. Um, but I think, you know, in the most recent debates over the past several years, um, really they just reflect, the, the controversy of them reflects a sense among many people that race relations in the U.S. are very tense, that, you know, the when President Obama was elected, whether one was a Democrat or a Republican, there was a feeling, well, this marks a turning point. Maybe, uh, you know, we're moving beyond a long history of racial division and racial prejudice. Uh, but Obama's election seemed, on the one hand, to do that. On the other hand, to trigger tremendous resentment. And there seemed to be a lot of people who couldn't quite come to grips with the fact that we now had a black president. Um, people claiming he wasn't a citizen, you know, that kind of thing, or all sorts of derogatory and racist imagery of him around. Um, and so I think a heightened sense of 
you know, of the persistence of these racial issues uh, spilled over into debates about these statues. It's interesting because this, this sort of cottage industry of the Civil War in the South has been going on for a long time. And uh, yes, indeed. when the statue thing cropped up, I, I bought uh, a dreadful book called The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Civil War because I figured I'd give them the fairest hearing I possibly could by reading yeah, the book that was that top. Book, but, uh, you're, okay. not, you're, you're not missing anything. Um, it, okay. it, what it really sort of boiled down to was uh, they would just make historical assertions such as, well, um, if you look at the British Empire, they got rid of slavery peacefully, that would have happened in America as well, ignoring yeah. the fact that slavery was enshrined in the Confederate Constitution, so I have no idea how that would have happened. But like people who... Like, I, I've met a lot of people in the South when I was traveling there, uh, and I talked to them about this issue, and otherwise sweet people seem to have a bizarre and ahistorical obsession with making claims about the Civil War that are so easily disprovable, all you have to do is flip to right. the sources of the back. Where is yeah. that? And that long predates all of this. Where does that w- w- sort of you weird know, that's obsession a very come from? Uh, it's a good question because. Um, you know, when I lecture about this, I do frequently to non-university audiences, you know, people at historical societies or Civil War groups or something. You know, I always say, look, nobody here is accusing anybody of anything. To say that slavery was the fundamental cause of the Civil War, is there is nobody alive today who was a slave owner, and there's nobody alive today who was a slave before the Civil War. So... No person is being singled out here for criticism or abuse, but nonetheless, people seem to find it like a personal affront mm-hmm. to say the Confederacy was based on slavery, or simply to quote the Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, slavery is the cornerstone of the Confederacy. He didn't beat about the bush. He didn't feel there was a need to deny that or you know, hide it. But um, somehow people feel that they're being accused of something when, uh, if they're Southerners, whites, when they hear that people say that slavery is the cause of the Civil War, um, and that these statues may represent many things, but one of the things they certainly represent is the defense of a society or a, based on slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the attempts to deny that do lead you off into all sorts of historical fiction and historical uh, just uh, you know speculation without any real basis. Um, the Confederacy would have given up slavery if they had won. Well, maybe 75 years later, 100 years later. I once heard an economist give a talk, I don't know if this is 100% correct, that slavery could certainly have survived intact until the Great Depression of the 1930s. At that point, the price of cotton fell so low that maybe slavery would have become uneconomical. Maybe. That's total speculation, of course. But there's no evidence that had the Confederacy won, there was any interest in getting rid of slavery in, in a reasonable uh, amount of time. Um, so it's unfortunate that we couldn't resolve that peacefully. It's much better to resolve it peacefully than to have uh, hundreds of thousands of people die. But, um, you know, there's no evidence that that, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln proposed many times at the beginning of the war in the first year or two a long-term plan for getting rid of slavery with monetary compensation to the slave owners, gradual emancipation. They all said, forget it. We are not interested in your plan, Mr. Lincoln. We want to keep our slaves. Um, 
So, uh, you know, but I think the, the way people today react to that, talking about issues 150 years ago, is strange. I, I think it's a good point, you know. I don't know why people become so embroiled in it, you know. Yeah. And um, I find it also interesting that the civil rights movement, the commemoration of the civil rights movement does not evoke such passionate debate one way or the other. Um, everybody seems to agree that the segregation system was wrong, was immoral, was oppressive. The civil rights movement has become absorbed into a kind of national narrative of progress. Uh, there are museums around celebrating the civil rights movement. And the civil rights movement is, you know, within our lifetime. There are many people today who knew about who, who participated or were yeah. alive at the time or who opposed it. And yet it doesn't seem as controversial as talking about the Confederacy a century and a half ago. Yeah, there are presumably women who screamed at Ruby Bridges who are still alive. And of course there are, and people who said segregation now, segregation forever, as uh, George Wallace did. Um, and yet they don't seem to mind that Martin Luther King's birthday is a holiday and uh, things like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, the, the, because, you know, the, to go further on this, the whole the myth of the lost cause, the myth of the Confederacy being a harmonious, uh, uh, multicultural paradise of black and white all cooperating with each other, uh, of slavery not being a very oppressive institution and would have died out anyway. Um, you know that mythology developed over a long period of time and much closer to the historical period. It really became prominent in the 1890s, early 20th century. And it formed part of the intellectual uh, foundation for the Jim Crow system, which was put in place at that time. Uh, so it's been around for a long, long time, uh, and it obviously still has a hold on the Im imagination of many people in the South. And this is one thing I really wanted your opinion on uh, when I was doing when I was doing research for this is, is is looking at a lot of the arguments for say gradual emancipation and things like that and it, it seems bizarre that in 2018 I'm asking you about this because it's relevant again but one of the things one of the things that they consistently brought up um, was they were talking about um, a reasonable rate of emancipation and and that sort of thing and one of the things I, I thought of is that in order to make this claim you have to essentially ignore the few million Southerners uh, who were in chains. You had to ignore yeah, exactly, a, an entire exactly. an entire culture. Like when you say Southern culture, uh, well, yes, you're obviously excluding the the black culture, which had a, you know Negro spirituals. Yeah, I, like they I think created. That's completely right. And you know what I try to avoid, although sometimes I fall into it. This general pattern of talking about the South as if it's only the white South. The South believed this, or the South fought for this. Yeah, you had four million. African-American slaves who were Southerners, they were born in the South, they lived in the South, um, their outlook was part of the Southern point of view, so to speak. And certainly, you're right, gradual emancipation might have seemed reasonable to whites, but it didn't seem very reasonable to slaves. Who were seeing their... Immediate emancipation, you know? Yeah, well, they were seeing, like, uh, I always say, what's reasonable? What's reasonable? You know, there's good evidence of that because in the British emancipation, you know, in the 1830s when the British abolished slavery in the West Indies, the Caribbean, etc. Um, they tried a slightly gradual, they, they tried to put into place what they called an apprenticeship period, which was only about five or six years, 
but uh, it would be a gradual transition between slavery and freedom, and it, it was a total failure. The slaves didn't want it. They wanted their, slave, their freedom immediately. They refused to act as apprentices still under the control of their former owners, and the former owners didn't like it either because under the apprenticeship, you couldn't whip the slaves anymore, and they said, well, how are we going to make them work? This is right. ridiculous. Are we owners or not? And so the apprenticeship fell apart very quickly, and that was only a few years' transition. So, um, you know, uh, there's very little evidence that a gradual plan would have worked at all uh, in the United States. Once you announced it, the slaves would have demanded their freedom uh, immediately, uh, you know, and would have done whatever they could to get it. It would have, it would have totally disrupted the system, and... Uh, you know, it, it was just a, not a viable solution, even though a lot of people dreamed of it as a, a kind of a way to avoid uh, further conflict. Well, one of the things that, that's, that's, that I've been having a hard time with, because I've talked to a lot of people who who have the view of the Civil War that we were just discussing, is the inability to empathize, say, with somebody who, if emancipation doesn't happen immediately, your family might be split up and you, you'd never see part of them again. Your wife or your daughter, you know, yeah, might, exactly. might might be getting sexually assaulted. Like this was. You have to in entirely ignore their experience, and I, I interviewed last year uh, a man named George Walker. He was the first African-American to win the Pulitzer Prize for music, and uh -huh. he was 95. He, he passed away in August, actually. He was 95 when I interviewed him, and he talked about talking to his grandmother when she was in her 90s, and she had been a slave uh -huh. on the southern plantation, and I had this sort of incredible moment talking to him where he was telling me what he had heard firsthand about being a slave on a southern plantation, and the, the line that stuck out to me was... Uh, he said that when he asked, what was it like, uh, a grandmother, and he, she said, they did everything but eat us. <laughs> and it, yeah, you know, uh, I think that's a good point because it shows you that slavery, it seems like a long time mm -hmm. ago, a century and a half, but in historical time, it's in human, in the time of human generations, human lifetimes, I should say, it's not that long ago. You spoke to a man who had spoken to a woman who was a slave, you know? So, in a sense, you're getting an indirect but pretty close account of what slavery is like, you know, through that. So, uh, you know, human memory goes through lifetimes, and so there's two lifetimes since slavery, basically, and uh, that's not that long ago, historically speaking. I mean, there are places in the world, as you know, where they are still fighting over things that happened a thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. Shiites versus Sunnis in the Muslim world, or in Northern Ireland, they're still battling it out over things that happened 500 years ago. Um, so slavery is a lot closer in time to us than in some of these uh, places where historical memory persists, and sometimes, uh, unfortunately so, in terms of dividing people. And with that long view, there's 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 been quite a lot of uh, of rounds of depressing polling that have come out indicating the the lack of of historical knowledge, generally speaking, right across North America. That we are in su to some degree becoming a rootless people, except for these <laughs> yeah. strange tribal attachments. What, in your mind, as a historian and as a historian who has published many groundbreaking works, what do you think that our society, uh, you know, sort of needs to know, and how can we go about repairing the the memory? hole that things seem to be falling down because we're, we're discussing in 2018 you know the arguments that were being had in 1860 so the stuff is not going to go yeah. away 
Well, you know, uh, on the one hand, I would point out that, um, you know, this <laughs> complaints or findings about people not knowing history, there's nothing new about them. A hundred years ago, uh, in the progressive era, there were all these studies that showed that people didn't know any American history, and, uh, you know, scholars and others threw up their hands, or what kind of country is this where no one knows any history? In other words, it's not a new phenomenon. Um, and moreover, it coexists with the fact that there does seem to be a lot of interest in history. Uh, people, the attendance at historical sites like national park sites or historical museums is very high. Uh, there are always works of history on the bestseller list. Now, most of them, to be sure, are biographies of great men rather than broader <laughs> works of history, right. so to speak. Um, but it's not that there's no interest in history. Uh, there is. It's just that, as you say, there's a lot of mythology out there, a lot of tribalism. Uh, people kind of seem to want to choose the history to, that they feel the most comfortable with, whether it's good history or not. There's a lot of fake history, to borrow the phrase fake news, <laughs> going around. And unfortunately, it is, uh, its circulation is now made even greater by the Internet, where, you know, if you look things up on the Internet about history, God knows what you're going to find, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, and as a scholar, I find this unfortunate. As a teacher, you know, maybe we failed, historians, to really make our findings, our scholarship accessible to, um, to the broad general public. Uh, perhaps it's our fault. But... Um, you know, uh, I think the only thing to do is to try to keep presenting history in the most, uh, you know, accurate manner possible to the broadest audience possible. And, um, you know, that that's that's I've devoted a lot of my time to doing that. Many of my colleagues in the historical profession do. And um, but this is traditionally a, a future looking society. I think it was Herman Melville said, you know, uh, the, the past is the textbook of tyrants. The future is the Bible of the free. You can, or Tom Paine, we have it our we have it in our world to be, we have it in our power to begin the world over again. We can just wipe out history and start over. And that is a that attitude is pretty deeply ingrained in American culture, and it does tend to lead to a lack of. Uh, interest in history and much greater interest in what's coming next. Well, interestingly enough, if you look at the last couple of years, it seems like certain elements on the far right have become willing to, to defend the indefensible, and certain people on the left want to judge everybody who was born 15 minutes ago as being a sort of a hateful bigot. So you see an attack of, <laughs> from history. You have to rescue it from both sides and tell real stories to some extent. And that brings me to, to, to your book. Uh, my, my, my favorite, well, I don't know if it's my uh, the fiery trial was, uh, was also excellent, but the gateway, uh, okay. the underground Railroad, because it, right. you have, you have a completely different view to some extent that other people do, and that seems to me like a story that should be somewhat unifying. It's it's a multi. Well, I would think so. It was unifying in many ways um, back then, in the sense that many people who were not abolitionists at all uh, supported the Underground Railroad in one form. The Underground Railroad is, I think. Um, relevant and inspiring in that it did bring a lot of different kinds of people together working for the common cause of assisting 
what would today be called migrants, refugees, you know, illegal immigrants or emigrants or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, yeah, those stories can be unifying, and uh, one hopes that more people, you know, really become acquainted with them. I mean, Harriet Tubman, for example, is a pretty widespread popular hero today. There are, someone told me there were more children's books published each year about Harriet Tubman than anybody else in American history, and they're used widely all over the country. So she, people can look at her and say, what a courageous person, regardless of your view of politics today. What about your book was, was groundbreaking at the time? I know that you used sources that other people had not previously used, and, and it, was a, it was fascinating how, how you stumbled across them. Wasn't it your yeah. dog walker or something who alerted yeah, you well, to them? That's exactly what it was. I mean, it was luck on my part. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't claim it. There was anything like that. My dog walker, who was a student here at Columbia, uh, was writing a senior thesis about this fellow Sidney Howard Gay, whose papers are in the Columbia Manuscript Library. Uh, and he was an. She was interested in his journalistic career. He was an anti-slavery editor. But she pointed out to me. She said, "You know, this is a very big collection. But up in box 75." there's this document about fugitive slaves. It's not really relevant for me, but I know your interest. You might want to take a look at it sometime. And I I put that in the back of my mind. You know, I didn't, I said, oh, well, I don't know what that is. And, you know, I'm doing other stuff. But one day I was up at the library and I said, well, yeah, bring me that thing. I'm kind of curious what it is. And it turned out to be this virtually unknown. One or two scholars had consulted it briefly, but nobody had really done anything much with it. And it was this record over two years of over 200 fugitives who this fellow had helped pass through New York City on their way to Canada and freedom. And it was a real remarkable inside account of how the Underground Railroad operated and also what was on the mind of these fugitives. Because he, being a journalist, he interviewed them all and wrote down what they said right in the midst of escaping. So, uh, you know, it was... It, it was. I said, I've got to do something with this. And, you know, normally when you write a book, you kind of think of a question or an issue, and you say, where am I going to find the sources to study this? This right. was the opposite. I had a source. And then I said, well, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> and I worked outward from it, trying to find out who were the people mentioned in it, you know, there are all sorts of names, trying to find out as much as I could about them, and then track down the pathways that were listed in the book and look at other work on the Underground Railroad. So um, it got me going. But I, as I say, it was uh, just my good fortune that this uh, young woman that was working for us uh, uh, happened to come upon this and happened to mention it to me. So you never know. Serendipity is uh, an important part of life. For our listeners, just to pique their interest in the book, what is one of the most interesting things you discovered in your research for your book on the Underground Railroad that you had no idea yet and wasn't really common knowledge? Well, first of all, you know, the, the Underground Railroad, like many subjects, has gone through ups and downs of interpretation. There was a long period where it was greatly exaggerated, where people thought it was that they took the railroad metaphor too literally, that there were fixed paths and stations and agents and, you know, it was all this giant system. And that's not the case. On the other hand, subsequently, people denigrated it altogether. They said, you know, most of these people ran away on their own, nobody helped them, and there really was no Underground Railroad. And so what, you know, what, what struck me as I was reconstructing this was, yes, there was a system, but it was pretty small. A fairly small number of people actually devoted themselves 
to uh, it, a lot of their time to helping uh, fugitive slaves. There were a lot who kind of helped once in a while, or if something was going on in their town. But um, you know, it, I, I, it, it, I, it was just a bunch of it, it was a series of local networks uh, which were pretty small but somehow managed to do a remarkable amount, given how few people they involved and how little money they had. And so, um, you know, it gave me a different picture of what the Underground Railroad was, a small number of very dedicated people uh, linked together in a network by the 1840s that did help some number, nobody knows how many, but certainly thousands of people escape from slavery. Um, and, uh, you know, just how it operated was something that surprised me very much in digging up all this information. I guess the final question would be when you're looking uh, at this and you're looking at how these new documents completely transform our understanding of the Underground Railroad, and there's new books coming out all the time. A book by Meyer yeah. on the Borgias has transformed our understanding of, of that, you know, papal dynasty. I recently received some photocopies of a letter owned by an old lady in Vancouver, Canada, whose father met Hitler and wrote his impressions of Hitler in, in, in letters to, to, uh, wow. to his wife that nobody's ever seen these before. That's really interesting, yeah. So to what extent is our, our, our understanding of history constantly evolving, and, and should of we be keeping an open it, mind it, about it, this? We are finding new things. Moreover, nowadays, of course, with the Internet, and, you know, now the document that I, found, that I was told about is now digitalized. One of the things I did in doing this was to digitalize it and put it online so anyone in the world can access it now through the Columbia University library system. Um, and, you know, a tremendous array of things, newspapers, manuscripts, uh, all sorts of things, images, uh, are now available sitting in your own home. You can access millions of things which previously were not accessible to you. And that makes research uh, challenging in a way because there's too much stuff in some ways, but also much easier. I mean, it was valuable for me because there are all these obscure abolitionist publications, newspapers, pamphlets, uh, that now are online, and I could, if I had these names of people, I could track down uh, by searching for them in these uh, sources uh, what their, uh, you know, what, who they were, what their activities were, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but yes, things are always coming up, and it is today. You have to convince students not everything is online. You've still got to go to libraries. You've still right. got to go to manuscript right. holdings. Uh, don't just think that looking up Wikipedia is the extent of your research. Um, but uh, th so there's still much to be discovered, and certainly about the Underground Railroad, because that really needs to be at the very local level. Different communities, what happened, who was helping them, how did that work? There's a lot of local information that still needs to be uncovered about the Underground Railroad. Well, Dr. Foner, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us. Certainly. A pleasure to talk to you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Eric Foner, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author of books on Lincoln, the Underground Railroad, and much, much more. This show is brought to you by Total Rentals, and we hope you enjoyed this discussion. We have a number of these discussions coming very soon to the podcast, and as I mentioned before, we've got some pretty cool news to announce uh, for the new year with the direction this podcast will be taking. If you want to check out past podcasts, you can head over to SoundCloud. You can go to YouTube, iTunes, or Facebook. 
uh, or just thebridgehead.ca, where you can also read the daily culture war updates uh, that we post there. I've got a lot of columns that go up there multiple times a week. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time.